This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Millions of readers of Little House on the Prairie believe they know Lara Ingalls, the pioneer girl who survived blizzards and near starvation on the Great Plains, and the woman who wrote the famous autobiographical books. But the true saga of her life has never been fully told. Now drawing on unpublished manuscripts, letters, diaries, land and financial records, Caroline Fraser masterfully fills in the gaps in Wilder's biography, revealing the grown-up story behind the most influential childhood epic of pioneer life. The book is Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. It's winner of the Pulitzer Prize and many other prizes. Caroline Fraser is editor of the Library of America edition of Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House Books, author of uh, previously of Rewilding the World and God's Perfect Child. Her writing has appeared in New York Review of Books, The New Yorker, Atlantic, Los Angeles Times, and London Review of Books, among other publications. She lives in uh, New Mexico. Caroline Fraser, uh, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks very much. Uh, so congratulations, uh, Pulitzer Prize, just one of the prizes, uh, 10 Best Books, New York uh, Times Review of Books, a winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award. This is, it's resonating. Yeah, I, I've been, uh, you know, incredibly uh, sort of pleased and overwhelmed by uh, the reaction to the book. Uh, I didn't really know when I was writing it if, if people would welcome all this history attached to Wilder's life, but uh, but they have, and it's been great. Uh, how did you get into uh, you know wanting to write a biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder? Well, I you know as a kid, I was a fan uh, of Wilder's. I read the Little House books when I was eight or nine, and and loved them, and uh, they were real favorites of mine. And then uh, some years later, uh, after. Um, uh, I grew up. I had the opportunity to write about Wilder in a in a long article that examined uh, this controversy about uh, the authorship of the Little House books because a uh, biography of uh, Laura's daughter Rose had been published that claimed that Rose was really the author, um, and so that was kind of my entree to the subject. And then uh, years later, I was asked to uh, edit the the new edition of the Little House books for the Library of America. Uh, and and as I was doing that and assembling a, a chronology of her life, I, I realized how uh, really fascinating it was and and how it really opened up that whole chapter of American history um, in a way that, that few other things did. I wonder if I could have you uh, read uh, just a brief passage, uh, page one, the, the first page of the introduction. Uh, sure. Half, half a page here uh, gets us into this idea of, uh, uh, we think we know Laura Ingalls, right? <laughs> And, uh, there, um, you want me to start with just the very beginning uh, the of very, the introduction uh -huh. on a spring day? Uh-huh, yeah, and just read to the end of the page. Okay. Um, on a spring day in April of 1924, 
Laura Ingalls Wilder, a 57-year-old farm wife in the Missouri Ozarks, received a telegram from South Dakota. Her mother, Caroline Ingalls, had just died. Wilder hadn't seen her for more than 20 years. A few weeks later, still reeling, she wrote a brief note to be published in place of her regular column in a farm newspaper. Every woman in the world who has lost her mother will recognize the retrospective shadow of sorrow, regret, and crippling nostalgia that the news cast across her life. Some of us have received such messages, she said flatly. Those who have not, one day will. Then it all became too much to bear. Memories, she wrote, we go through life collecting them whether we will or not. Sometimes I wonder if they are our treasures in heaven or the consuming fires of torment when we carry them with us as we, too, pass on. It was a startling public outburst for a woman in a small Missouri town known to her neighbors as reserved, poised, even withdrawn. She seemed anguished by her memories, willed and unwilled. The realization that she would be visited for the rest of her life by images of people and places she could never forget was dismaying to her. They are with us forever, she wrote, as if in disbelief. So the first thing you know that stands out to me, uh, I guess I had Laura Ingalls Wilder placed in my mind forever in the Dakotas, right? Kind of right. forever a child, <laughs> for understandable yeah. reasons. Sure. Um, but she lived the vast majority of her life uh, in in Missouri, right? That's right. In in uh, what was essentially the South, which is. Really surprising, because, of course, most people think of her as being uh, part of the history of the West, but she never really, um, as a child at least, got further west than uh, Dakota Territory. So um, it really is fascinating to realize that her whole adult life was a period that she didn't write about. You know, she she wrote uh, about her childhood, but stopped the day she got married at 18. Um, And so there were decades and decades of her life uh, that she didn't write about, which were full of dramatic and um, fascinating stories themselves, in some ways even more dramatic than the stories she chose to tell. This is a a fascinating slice of American history. She was born pretty soon after the Civil War, right, and Mm -hmm. lived into the 1950s, I believe. Yes, until 1957, you know, which is the Eisenhower administration. So when you think about that, and, and especially the period when she was writing the books relatively late in her life, you know, those were some of the most traumatic years in, in our history, the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. Uh, and those events came to, to really influence her view of the American character, I think, and and that really comes through in the Little House books. Uh, so you write that these these memories, at least as they initially started coming, <clears throat> anguished her. Um, and they're they're getting that kind of uh, goes counter to, uh, of course, uh, Little House on the Prairie books. Uh, you, you have happy endings. I mean, you have a lot that happens, but it's happy endings. It's right. eventually it was written uh, and marketed to children. 
Yes, and she felt very strongly that they needed to be appropriate for children. So even though uh, there are darker passages in the books, they do, as you say, all end happily. Um, but, you know, I do think it was very difficult for her to revisit some of these memories, in part just because she loved her family so deeply. She really um, loved her, her parents uh, I think in a lot of ways these books were an homage to them. So she wanted to do this for them, but at the same time I think it was very painful for her to reflect on some of their more difficult times, um, their economic struggles. Uh, her sister Mary um, suffered a very severe illness and went blind. Uh, that was clearly a very, very difficult thing for her to write about, um, and I think it also uh, was was a very intense experience for her to write because she was missing her family so much. Is and so that I mean they're you know hundreds of miles away hadn't I think hadn't seen her family for twenty years right her her mother dies she she starts getting into this that would naturally I suppose produce nostalgic view is that yeah that for, for sure you know I mean she and her husband. Um, after their their marriage, uh, had a series of, of really tragic um, disasters, you know, crop failures and debts, and uh, Almanzo Wilder, her husband, uh, fell ill with diphtheria and suffered a, a stroke that left him permanently disabled. And all of these disasters taken together uh, really meant that they had to leave the area where her parents lived. Uh, they left in 1894 and made this journey uh, south, uh, in part for his health, uh, and and to find land that would be easier for him to work. And so that meant that she didn't see her father for years until he was on his deathbed. And and of course, her mother lived some years after that. But she she really did not return to Desmet, South Dakota. Um, where they had lived for for many many years, uh, and and I think that that did create this this very intense feeling of of regret and nostalgia for that life. So that you write that this is an exercise in uh, in myth making, not in a pejorative sense. Was this um, conscious on her part? Uh, she I think she wanted to honor her parents, for example, right? Yes, and and I think it was both conscious and, in some ways, unconscious. She she uh, really valued her her parents' um, uh, devotion to what she saw as uh, American values, honesty and integrity and self reliance. Um, and so she really wanted to bring out those qualities. And she tended to overlook some of the <laughs> uh, incidents and, and anecdotes about uh, their past that that ran counter to those values. Um, so so she brought out uh, the best qualities of, of her parents and painted her father particularly in the best possible light. Um, and and I think that in doing that, uh, she did create this kind of mythology around um, American farming and homesteading. She she made it seem as if, um, while it was a, a, a struggle, uh, that it all worked out in the end. Of 
course, when you look at the history um, of homesteading, it, it turns out to have been a little bit more complicated mm-hmm. than that. Yeah, I want to jump into that because it's, it's uh, and you know, a lot of us have family histories and, you know, in this vein. Um, those complications, for one, um, Charles uh, Ingalls, uh, he always wanted to own land. You had to, you know, have cash go into debt to do that. Never able to pay it off, uh, you know, so had to give the land up. It just continual uh, is cycle of this, where the, where the dreams were were there but were dashed. Yes, and, and this history played out again with uh, the Wilders themselves just after they were married with uh, Almanza Wilder, who was also a homesteader. And um, both Charles Ingalls and Almanzo uh, were able to uh, prove up on the land, as they call it, and uh, acquire title to it. Uh, but then they couldn't hold on to the land because of the, the debt that they had. And in a lot of the ways, this was not uh, their fault. It wasn't like they were lazy or not working hard enough in, in any way. They um, they worked themselves half to death. But uh, the problem, I think, for them, as for many other people uh, who came to homesteading relatively late, was that the land that they ended up claiming was was fairly marginal, uh, especially the people who went out onto the Great Plains. They were in a region that um, had very unreliable precipitation and um, not a lot of water and these were areas that also were plagued by locust swarms, uh, for example, which, of course, the Wilders experienced when they were in uh, western uh, Minnesota. So all of these these issues were, were well known, really, to explorers and, and even government scientists. But um, the warnings uh, that those scientists gave were not really heeded. Um, by either the the farmers or or the government or the railroads, which kept encouraging people to go further and further west. Um, so tragically, for for a lot of these people, uh, they ended up uh, being uh, ruined by debt and drought uh, and other forces that were really beyond their control. And I think part of the mythology here is that uh, all of these homesteaders, all of these pioneers, um, you know, handled it with grit and fortitude. Many of them did. <laughs> um, yes, they did. But uh, over- overwhelmed, I think it overwhelmed some people, didn't it? Oh, sure. And and you can read, uh, you know, astonishing accounts of, of people who uh, basically almost, almost went mad, you know, out on the prairies uh, because of the isolation and, um, you know, the fear of Indians and so forth. I mean, there were so many um, struggles that these people faced, and, and some people were were able to deal with it. Um, and of course, Laura Ingalls uh, Wilder was one of them. I mean, she, the the things that she experienced, the the tragedies that happened one after another um, when in her early married life, or, or would have killed a lot of people. But um, it's astonishing to kind of watch her perseverance and planning. You know, she was she was just an incredible uh, 
person when it came to trying to figure out solutions where it just didn't seem like there were any. Let's take a break. When we come back, I'd, I'd like to have you um, tell me about Lara Ingalls Wilder, the, the person. It's a, it's, it's a very real person that uh, emerges from the pages of this book. Um, and, you know, it, it, we, know the, we know the little girl, right? And <laughs> that's who we sure. know. Uh, so it's interesting to get to know Lara Ingalls Wilder, and, and she also stands in for, for many during this period, Civil War up to the 1950s. Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Lara Ingalls Wilder, is the book. It's winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Caroline Fraser is our guest for the hour. Coming up, a special edition of Witness History from the BBC, with first-hand accounts of major moments that changed our understanding of the way we live and its effect on the planet. We hear about the groundbreaking research by the father of climate science. And we meet the woman who began the organic farming movement. I'm Claire Bowes. Join me for Witness History, Environmental History. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. One of the most indelible figures in theatrical history comes to life. My nose is small? Eh? My nose, sir, is enormous. (laughs) Cyrano de Bergerac by Edmund Rostand. Starring Hamish Linklater, Gregory Itzen, and Jason Ritter. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Tune in Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Silicon Slopes magazine, focused on Utah tech, business, and startups, supporting causes that affect us all. Information about upcoming events and advertising in the magazine at siliconslopes.com, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2019. This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to have Caroline Fraser as our guest for the hour. She's winner of the Pulitzer Prize for her biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder. It's called Prairie Fires, the American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. She says millions of readers of Little House on the Prairie believe they know Laura Ingalls, the pioneer girl who survived blizzards and near starvation on the Great Plains, and the woman who wrote the famous autobiographical books. But the true saga of her life has never been fully told. And uh, it uh, makes for a great book in and of itself. I'd like to have you tell me about uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, the, the, the person. Uh, uh, you know, some details that really stand out to me. Uh, prided herself on, on uh, raising chickens. Um, in, in a very immaculate housekeeper. <laughs> uh, you say she could be quite judgmental, but also judgmental of herself. Uh, tell us about Laura yeah, Ingalls Wilder, the person. She, she was a complicated person. I mean, she... Uh, uh, had quite a temper, you know, by her own admission, and, and there are some funny anecdotes about this um, from her husband, among others. <laughs> she, she, uh, you know, as she described in, in the little house book, she, was, she could be quick to uh, fly off the handle and then regret 
what she'd said later. Um, but she was an extraordinary, uh, uh, you know, extraordinarily gifted at um, creating jobs for herself and, and, and income for the family. And one of those uh, jobs was uh, specializing in uh, hens. And, and this is really w- where her um, writing career began, was in writing these uh, articles for farm journals describing how to keep a hen house and how to raise chicks, which turns out to have been a uh, fairly complicated business and um, involved a lot of uh, a very careful um, feeding and uh, care for for chicks and and you can actually see in the little house books how important uh, chickens were to the settlers. You know, if you had some of these um, kinds of livestock, it could really mean the difference between uh, life and death. Um, so. Uh, that was a huge part of her life, but she also kind of developed all these other jobs for herself to bring in income, um, including acting as, you know, secretary treasurer for the Farm Loan Association. Um, and, uh, and as she was doing all these things, she was also developing her career as a farm journalist and, and became a columnist. So um, she just was... Uh, somebody who worked uh, indefatigably. I mean, she, um, that I think is, is one of the aspects of her character that really comes out in these books that, that um, she, you know, never has uh, a free moment just about. And yet she also really enjoyed life uh, on the farm. She just loved living in these beautiful rural places. And as she went about her work in the in the kitchen or the um, you know the hen house or um, writing her her books, she would look out on these uh, her picture windows, um, which she describes so beautifully. Um, she just loved the vistas of the fields and the woods and the animals. You say that uh, she lived her life in three acts. Uh, the, you know, the first act is chronicled uh, in in the books. Uh, second act, uh, she and her she gets married at eighteen. She's uh, a mother by nineteen. Uh, she and her husband struggling to to rise out of poverty. And the third act, a, a tremendous you know last decades of her life story of rags to riches with the publication of of the books. Right, and and in many ways, it's that second act that is the most remarkable because they lost virtually everything. I mean, after they, uh, after Almanza suffered the illness that I had mentioned earlier, um, they uh, lost a, a child, a boy um, who was born and, and died less than a month later, and, and shortly after that, their house burned down. Um, this beautiful home that Almanzo had built uh, for her. And so that left them with with virtually nothing except debts. And for a decade, they were uh, kind of moving around. They spent some time with his parents. They went to Florida. They came back to DeSmet. uh, And and all the time working at odd jobs, trying to um, put together a stake, uh, a financial stake that would take them uh, somewhere where they could uh, find a better life. 
And once they get to Mansfield, Missouri, where they decided to go, this was called the land of the Big Red Apple because it was known for its orchards, um, it, it still remained quite a struggle. Um, they they were able to buy 40 acres, but the land was not particularly, <laughs> you know, it was kind of sketchy, and um, uh, they called it Rocky Ridge because it was covered in rocks, as, as a lot of the land there was. Uh, and so um, they really struggled for, for many years, uh, again, working at these odd jobs. Almanzo uh, delivered freight from the, the train, um, and uh, she worked as a, a kind of an accountant for a fuel oil company. And so, you know, for many, many years, they, they uh, labored to um, hold the family together. And, and, of course, they're raising their daughter, Rose, uh, at this period. Um, so it, it really was a remarkable, um, you know, year after year struggle to reclaim uh, their dream of having their own land and, and being able to raise their family on it. And eventually, uh, you know, they really triumphed. I mean, Rocky Ridge became one of the um, showplace uh, farms. They built a beautiful farmhouse uh, on that land, uh, which is still there today, and you can visit it. Um, and And so really... Uh, turn things around, but I, I, I think it was that whole period of, of uh, working and living so far away from, from her original family that inspired this, this need to kind of revi- revisit her past. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with Caroline Fraser. She is author of Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. It's winner of the uh, Pulitzer Prize. Uh, I wonder, so they they finally uh, made it. Uh, what about her parents? What about Charles and Caroline? What uh, what happened to them? Do they, cause, because in the in the books, they're, <laughs> they're just on the edge, like many on the frontier were. What happened with Charles and Caroline? Yeah, and they remained on on the edge, really, for the rest of their lives. I mean, that's one of the kind of melancholy things about um, the story of of Laura's life, because you see that uh, her father, um, who also had this this, uh, ability to kind of pick up odd jobs everywhere, um, he did all kinds of things. Uh, in the town, he worked as a carpenter, and um, you know all kinds of uh, had a store for a while. Um, so, but he really struggled, I, th- I think, and, and um, they ended up having to sell their homestead. And uh, of course, they were taking care of Mary. Um, Mary was living with them, and she too uh, came up with various um, crafts and things that she could sell. Uh, to add to the family income. But when Charles Ingalls dies, he really um, has nothing and, and can leave very little to his family except that the, except for the house uh, they were living in. And so you see um, how tough it was for those people um, in South Dakota to kind of eke out uh, a living. And, and this would be true also for Laura's uh, sisters. Grace and Carrie, uh, who also lived under pretty straightened circumstances. Mm-hmm. So uh, I want to get into uh, 
Well, let's talk about Rose and then get into the third act of uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder's uh, life, which and that, that's the act that uh, brought us the, the books. Um, so uh, Rose is a fascinating, fascinating character. Um, I think some have speculated uh, based on her on her life, uh, she may have suffered from bipolar disorder. We don't know for sure. Yeah, you know, we d- we we don't really know for sure, but but um, she does seem to have certainly suffered very severe depressions during her life. And and if you look at her childhood and what she experienced, you know the. Um, the tragedies that I was talking about, the, the loss of the, um, the baby and the house burning down um, outside of DeSmet. She was just a very young child when all of that happened, and I think that marked her really for the, for the rest of her life. And she continued to feel some kind of responsibility for all of that. Of course, it wasn't her fault, but that's how she felt. And, and so she became... Uh, almost kind of obsessed with houses, you know, building houses, remodeling houses, um, which is something that you see throughout her life. Um, but the other fallout, I think, of, of her traumatic childhood was that she and her mother had a very difficult relationship. Um, so uh, Rose ends up in San Francisco, gets into what we call today yellow journalism. All right. Uh, remind us what what that is. Yeah, this this was a, a kind of fascinating turn of events because um, she, you know, Rose had gone to San Francisco uh, because she married a fellow uh, who was there working um, possibly for uh, one of the newspapers. And of course, the thing about San Francisco at that time is that it was. Uh, the starting point for William Randolph Hearst and his empire of newspapers. And, and he, of course, was um, one of the, the major figures associated with yellow journalism, which um, is actually a, a very complicated uh, history. You know, we, th- we think of it now uh, in a wholly pejorative sense, and much of it was very sensational um, and some of the some of the journalism that was being produced was entirely fictional, <laughs> including much of of what Rose uh, ended up writing. And yet, there were other aspects of yellow journalism that um, brought in all kinds of of uh, positive changes for newspapers. You know, they became much more populist, much more available and accessible to uh, readers who were not you know, part of the elite. Uh, they brought in comics and sports writing, and uh, women, for the first time, uh, became journalists. Um, but some of them were were more respectable than others. <laughs> I mean, you mm-hmm. had um, uh, women who were doing uh, important exposés, um, but then you had people like Rose, and what Rose was doing was a kind of celebrity journalism. She was writing... Um, biographies of famous people like Henry Ford and Charlie Chaplin. But in a lot of cases, she was just inventing uh, these biographies, Um, you know, just uh, using the newspaper as a a kind of uh, way to promote um, and sell 
uh, newspapers by just associating them, themselves with, with these very famous people, um, but not really reporting accurately about their lives. And the interesting thing about this, I think, in the end, is that, of course, what uh, do she and her mother end up working on years later, but another kind of fictional autobiography. Yeah, that's, uh, by the way, there's resonances to today, right, with this with this kind of writing. <laughs> um, so, so how, how you mentioned that there's been a charge, a speculation that Rose herself was the, the real author of these books. Uh, what do you say? Yeah, I think that um, it's entirely true that Rose played uh, a tremendously important role in editing her mother's work. Um, I don't think we would have these books if it weren't for Rose, because it was Rose's uh, professional connections to publishers and editors and agents in New York, um, as well as her you know, gift for editing that really brought these books into being. But that having been said, I do think that Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote these books. We, we have the evidence of it uh, in these uh, extraordinary um, tablets. You know, she, she went to the dime store and got these uh, cheap tablets and, and a pencil, and she sat down and wrote her life, first in the form of a memoir. Um, and when that didn't sell, uh, she re-envisioned um, that life uh, as novels for children. And and we do have her manuscripts. Uh, but, of course, Rose helped her enormously. You know, she brought a lot of uh, polish and, um, and professionalism to, to the whole project uh, and really helped her mother learn how to structure things, how to write dialogue. Um, so it was, a, it was a profoundly complicated relationship, but I think Laura was the writer and Rose was the editor. Uh, I want to take a break, and when we come back, I want to talk about how these books have been received. Uh, fascinating to me, the, the political leanings of these two women. Maybe we'll get into talking about, about that as well. I want to come back more with Caroline Fraser. Uh, her book, Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder, is winner of the Pulitzer Prize. More following this. This week in This American Life. Okay, so you're on a subway car, and onto the car comes a guy wearing no pants. A couple stops later, somebody else gets on. Also no pants. This keeps happening every few stops until the train has many, many people on it. No pants. Then somebody comes barreling through the car, selling pants. Mind games this week. Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. The first hundred days of a new presidency are a time for America to reset our national agenda. This is Brian Lehrer from WNYC. Join me, my guests, and listeners from around the country for live national call-in shows Thursday evenings for the first 100 days. How will we all get vaccinated, create jobs, fight racism, and restore our democracy? America, are we ready for the first 100 days? Thursday evenings at 6 here on Utah Public Radio. Tune in this evening at 6 o'clock for the final America Are We Ready as President Biden wraps up his first 100 days in office. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2019. 
This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We reached our last segment with Caroline Fraser. Uh, she's author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, biography, Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. Uh, so, Caroline Fraser, uh, I want to get into the third act. You say that Laura Ingalls Wilder's uh, life in three acts. The first act is, you know, the childhood, which is uh, chronicled in the books. Second act, uh, a long struggle with her husband and family to uh, to rise out of poverty. Now, uh, Great Depression Right, we're around the Great Depression time, and encouraged by her daughter, she uh, she I guess writes the first book and uh, gets contract to to publish this, and and this last act of her life uh, is a is a kind of a rags to riches story. She she gains fame and wealth through the publication of these books. Yeah, she she sure does uh, beyond you know her wildest uh, imaginings, I think. Um, but but this was. Uh, both kind of a, a terrible period for the country, um, and and um, turns out a pretty good uh, period for her, <laughs> and uh, I think that uh, uh, was one of the the real surprises of her life. And I'm I'm guessing. I mean, nobody I guess expects that. Okay, this these are going to become bestsellers, right? What what was she hoping? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't think she had any idea what to hope for. You know, Rose had had achieved a certain amount of success and had become, you know, fairly well paid uh, writer for magazines, wrote a lot of fiction, um, and and so forth. Rose was actually much more famous than her mother, of course, uh, at that um, period when they when she, when Laura first starts uh, writing these books, but the very first book, Little House in the Big Woods, published in uh, 1932, did very well for for a children's book during the Depression. Uh, so that really launched her. Um, and then some of the successive books did not do quite as well. Farmer Boy and and even Little House on the Prairie, you know, which of course is now the most famous of of all the books, um, but. Then, as they went along, you know, they brought so many readers in, and kids started writing to Laura and saying, "What happens next? You know, what's going to happen to, you know, Laura and, and Almanzo, and how is their story um, going to end?" And basically, just sort of begging for more uh, of these books, and and so she uh, eventually decides to do her whole childhood up until. Uh, her marriage, and by the time she finishes, uh, the last book is published in 1943, um, These Happy Golden Years, the, the last one published during her lifetime, uh, they had really become very well-known and, uh, and beloved. What do, you think, uh, what do you think they stood for then, and what do you think, is, is, is there changes in how, what, what they stand for now? Well, you know, she always said that these were about her her parents' values. Um, you know, the what I was mentioning earlier. You know, the the things that she associated with them: honesty and integrity, and um, independence and self reliance. And so, I think 
those still remain uh, a part of their appeal. Um, but of course, the the you know the television show brought some other characteristics uh, into the the mix and and other personalities. Um, but I think we do see them as uh, reflective of our past, rightly or wrongly. You know, we associate them with uh, this period uh, on the frontier and, and American settlement. And I think that, uh, especially for white Americans, we, we want to um, see that whole period in a positive light. I mean, many of us uh, are, you know, grandparents or great-grandparents uh, came over here as immigrants during that period, and so we like to think uh, of them as heroic. And I think that those that the books definitely play into that. There are, and you've said this, uh, there are some problematic aspects, right, including uh, her depiction of uh, Native Americans. Yes, definitely, and and this I think has become one of the most interesting uh, debates now. Um, because the last year the American Library Association, their children's uh, division, voted to remove Wilder's name from an award that they had developed in the 1950s, uh, uh, the Laura Ingalls Wilder Medal, which was given to Lifetime uh, Achievement. And the first person that uh, received this was, of course, Laura Ingalls Wilder. Um, but they felt that uh, because of the depiction of Indians, particularly in Little House on the Prairie, um, that they could no longer uh, talk about um, or, or award people with something bearing her name um, because it just sort of sent the wrong message. Uh, and, the, and the depiction of Indians is um, very complicated and, and uh, I think really stands out now. Uh, in the in this current age, because we read something in, in Little House on the Prairie, like the the famous slur, you know, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, and that is is really takes people aback now, of course. Um, so I think we read the books very differently now than we used to, and I think if you're teaching them, you also have to teach them uh, in a very different context. You need to. Uh, place them in a in a historical context. By the way, uh, to your reading, what's the best book of the series? Um, I think Little House on the Prairie is is in many ways the most important uh, book um, in terms of its themes and the way that it connects to the history of that time. Um, but there are amazing scenes in in all of the books, I think, and and taken as a whole as a series. It was the whole series was really kind of made history, uh, publishing history in itself. Uh, what did the What do you think the television series did? Still in syndication, did that change people's views in any important way uh, about the, about the series about Laura Ingalls Wilder? I think what the television series did was. Um, simplify uh, the the in a way the message of the books and and really underscore um, that sense that you get uh, that um, this whole enterprise of of settlement and homesteading was in fact a, a huge economic success <laughs> and as I've I've mentioned uh, things were actually much more complicated than that and and a lot of people were not able to. 
uh, reach that success, including the Ingalls and uh, the Wilders. So um, I think that, you know, as television and, and movies often do, it, it kind of oversimplified um, the, the message and, and leaves people uh, with, with a kind of um, uh, misleading uh, belief that, that uh, everything worked out for the best. And this idea, I think Larry Ingalls Wilder encouraged this. She had this in her mind, you know, self-reliance, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Um, apparently, Ronald Reagan would 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 watch the series um, and and weep. Yes, and and I think that uh, you know the political leanings of of Wilder and her daughter. They both became um, very uh, strong opponents of FDR and the New Deal, um, that that kind of hardened, you know, became a, a sort of uh, more rigid belief for them, um, and, uh, but is a really interesting reflection of their early struggles, you know, even though I think probably nobody knew as well as Laura did uh, how almost impossible it was to be wholly self-reliant. Um, she still clung to that. Uh, as her ideal, and uh, very much resented the fact that, that other people were accepting government relief. She thought that that was um, pretty disgraceful. Even though apparently she she benefited, right? Got a did she get a loan? The Wilders got a loan from the government. To, sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean everybody who had a homestead benefited because the Homestead Act was one of the you know largest, if not the largest government, uh, you know, handouts, if you will, um, in, in American history. And then Rose, uh, Rose was pretty radical, right? Pretty radical libertarian, wanted to abolish yeah. uh, pretty much all government. Yeah, Rose is, is just such a character. I mean, she became um, uh, one of the founders of, of the libertarian movement with, with a couple of other women, including Anne Rand. And uh, she... Um, had very uh, strong views about the U.S., um, you know, about isolationism. She didn't want the U.S. to enter World War II um, uh, or, indeed, any war. She didn't want to have any government departments. You know, she, she basically didn't think there should be a military. I mean, she had, you know, very, very strong uh, libertarian views, and, and these she handed down. Uh, to the fellow Roger McBride, who ended up inheriting uh, the estate, and I think he ran for president. Uh, didn't he? he did in, in yeah. 1976, um, and he also, of course, was responsible for um, the television show for for selling the rights to uh, to that. So he had, even though he never met Laura, he had a, a huge impact on um, her legacy. We just have a couple of minutes left, and I want to, uh, you know, to, to final question here, ask you uh, what you take away from, from, from this biography, what, who the real Laura Ingalls Wilder is, what she stands for, what would you, what would you have people see? Yeah, I, I ended up um, with a tremendous admiration for her as a person. I, you know, even though I may not agree with everything she ever did or with some of her political um, leanings, I nonetheless 
uh, really admire her perseverance um, and her talent. You know, she she really had uh, a gift for describing um, her family and and these beautiful places where they lived. I mean, those uh, descriptions of the prairie I think will last. Um, forever. I mean, like Willa Cather and some of the other writers of, of the Great Plains. She she loved that place um, and, and ended up describing it in ways that are, I think, you know, immensely moving. So um, I came away with it with from, you know, writing this biography with, with great admiration um, and affection uh, for her. Um, and and you know, she is a, a kind of model of of how to how to you know make lemonade out of lemons, <laughs> uh, and 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 is just an extraordinary woman. Well, it's an extraordinary book, uh, Prairie Fires: The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. Has uh, won many awards, including the Pulitzer Prize. The author Caroline Fraser has uh, joined us. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here as dawn begins. Jupiter and Saturn are low in the southeast in the dim constellation Capricornus. And later in the day, in the glow of a beautiful sunset, Venus and Mercury are beginning their twilight emergence just above the west-northwest horizon. Grab the binos about 15 minutes after sunset and zoom in. And as the moon changes phases, Luna is still gliding through the skies. And on April 27th was at Peregrine, which is the moon's closest approach to the Earth in its orbit. The conjunction of Peregrine and full moon led to the beauty of the supermoon. Stay tuned for the only other supermoon of the year coming May 26th. Many cultures, one sky. Humans have always been fascinated by the moon and have used it for planting, navigation, astronomy, mystery, and a night light in the sky. Each spring, indigenous cultures move the camp circle to higher ground, women gathering early berries and roots and repairing their lodges. Men fixed and created weapons and resumed hunting. Children enjoyed the warm weather after being confined for winter. And full moons are named for changes of season and weather. In northeast Maine, the Kikis culture, the May full moon is known as the field maker moon. For the Algonquin in the Great Lakes region, moon is Quanamakesos, the moon when people weed corn. For the Chippewa, it's the Blossom Moon. For the Cree of the Northern Plains in Canada, Frog Moon. And the Arapaho, the full moon in May is when the ponies shed their shaggy hair. Cultures from all over the world enjoy and interpret the night sky. It's a common heritage. Also during the first space age and exploration of the moon by the Apollo program, the Apollo 15 mission was on the moon from July 30th to August 2nd, 1971. While Al Worden kept an eye from orbit in the command module, Dave Scott and James Irwin got to roll around on the first lunar dune buggy, or rover. Going for a few rides from the landing spot, precariously tilted on the edge of a crater near the Hadley Rill to the Hadley Mountains. In his book, To Rule the Night, James Irwin, who attended Salt Lake's East High, conveys how amazed they were by the soaring heights of the mountains of the moon. Also impressed with the geologic strata at the Spur Crater, Irwin relates different shades of brown, light green, and a top layer of white, hmm, green on the moon. Also from orbit, Earth's moon shows shades of gold and copper to battleship gray and white. It depends on where you're looking from and the angle of the sun. You can see some contrast from your own backyard or the mountains or the canyons or the sand flats. Stay tuned for more on Apollo 15. You can also see a moon rock from the mission at the Gateway Planetarium. 
and taking the Skywatcher spaceship out a little further to Mars, NASA and JPL's Perseverance rover watched as the tiny Ingenuity helicopter took off for a third flight and did a little bit of exploring on its own. And the Perseverance rover racked up a huge milestone by converting carbon dioxide into oxygen. This could point the way to future human exploration of Mars and other places. And could that be useful on Earth as well? Explore images from Mars, the Moon, and other fun things on the Skywatcher Leo T Facebook page. Also bidding a smooth flight to one of the pioneers of Gemini and Apollo programs, and we celebrate the life of Michael Collins, who died on April 28th. Collins was involved in the groundbreaking Gemini program and had the best view of the angle of light on the moon as the command module pilot for Apollo 11, the first moon landing. He loves spaceflight and orbiting the moon with good humor and wonder, and he inspires us to look up, look around, and get a little lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T. With translator stations statewide and streaming live, you're listening to UPR. Mayan Burrell was 16 when police said he shot a girl. I believe that they were very conscious to the fact that they had the wrong person that was incarcerated, and they just didn't feel like my life was worth living. He got a life sentence. The first thing people kept telling me when I started talking about the case was, you know they don't let people out. A case that seemed hopeless. On the next Reveal. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.